Okay, Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. There's no doubt that throughout history there have been some extraordinary leaders. Leaders who have stepped up the right person at the right time. And those leaders often tend to stand out in times of greatest strife or times of greatest difficulty. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, probably one of the greatest leaders that the world has ever known. He was the President of the United States at undoubtedly their most turbulent time in history. And it's remarkable to see the way that he was actually able to keep the country together when it was looked from what everyone thought that it was going to splinter into a number of different separate countries. But he had a vision for the United States. He was an incredible orator and a strong leader and was able to pull the country through that most difficult of times. Um, I'm in the middle of reading Boris Johnson's biography on the life of Winston Churchill. Uh, Again, another extraordinary leader. 
Here is a man who faced setbacks in his political career that would have forced any mere mortal out of public life forever. Uh, Even one or two, but he faced numerous setbacks. But he was convinced that he was the man to lead England as they moved toward the Second World War. Again, a man of extraordinary vision, a brilliant orator, and one of the greatest leaders that the world has ever known. Now, when you think of the name of Moses, you probably want to put him into that great leader category as well. Uh, You think about the man who confronted Pharaoh, the man who led Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. I think for most of us, this is the picture that we've got in mind. It's Charlton Heston, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's who Moses is. That's the image that we create in our heads of Moses. But it's interesting because that's not the way that the Bible presents him. Moses may be remembered as a great leader, and let there be no doubt that he did extraordinary things, but he was far from an enthusiastic leader. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the call of Moses where he's chosen by God to lead God's people. Now, as I said last week, we're going to ask the same three questions every Sunday of the Bible passage that we're looking at. First question is this, you've got them on the back of your notice sheet. What does the passage tell us? Just the basic comprehension question. What are the important things that we need to note from the passage? Second question is this, what does the passage tell us about how God deals with his people? This is the theological question. What do we learn about God from looking at this passage? But then the third question is the important one for us. What does the passage tell us about how God deals with his people in Jesus? See, all of the events that we read about here in the Old Testament, they are just a shadow of what it is that God is ultimately going to do through his son. So whenever we look at passages in the Old Testament, we need to think about how they point us toward Jesus. Jesus said to the Pharisees that the scriptures testify about him. So whenever we're looking in those pages of the Old Testament, we need to see what they say about Jesus. So let's start. First question, what does this passage tell us? Chapter 2 right through to chapter 6. Well, at the end of chapter 1, we saw that Pharaoh had embarked on a plan to subdue the Israelites. He began with slavery, wanted to make their life as hard as possible. Secondly, he told the midwives that they were to go and euthanize any baby boys that were born. Those two plans had failed, so he's come down to the less subtle plan, plan number three, throw all the young Israelite boys into the river. Now, the focus narrows down quite dramatically when you get to chapter two. Rather than looking at all of Israel living in Egypt, we've narrowed right down to one family, zoomed right into just one Hebrew family. And it's interesting, again, that we're not told their names. We're just told that they were both Levites from the tribe of Levi. We're not even told their son's name yet. He gets the name Moses a little later, and it's not his mother that gives him that name. The parents knew the decree from Pharaoh that baby boys were to be thrown into the river and they'd managed to keep him hidden for three months, but they knew that eventually they would be caught. So what she does is she places him in a basket and it's interesting, the Hebrew word there is not basket, it's ark. 
And I think that there's probably a very good reason for that. We're supposed to have our minds thrown back to Noah, who, through whom salvation comes in the ark. She places him in this ark in the river Nile. It's quite strange really, isn't it? She's actually doing exactly what Pharaoh told her to do. She's putting her baby into the Nile River. She just happened to put him in there in a basket that was lined and wasn't going to sink. Moses' sister stood close by to see what was going to happen with this basket. Now, whether they made a conscious decision to go down to where Pharaoh's daughter used to bathe in the Nile or not, we don't know. But the basket makes its way across to where Pharaoh's daughter is. I think this is one of those passages that just confirms that God has an extraordinarily good sense of humour. I mean, it really does, doesn't it? I mean, it's such a funny thing that happens here. The basket floats across the river. Here is Pharaoh's daughter, finds the basket, recognises that this is one of the babies that her father is trying to kill. So what does she do? Does she push the baby under the water? No, she says, I'm going to raise this one. I'm going to save the life of this child. Moses' sister steps in at this point and says, would you like me to find one of the Hebrew women to nurse this baby for you? Pharaoh's daughter says, a brilliant idea. Let's do that. In fact, I'll pay her to raise this child for me. And so who does Moses' sister find? Well, she finds Moses' mother to raise this child. Now again, I, I just think this is brilliant. Pharaoh wanted all of the baby boys dead, but God, well, he has another plan. And God has orchestrated things in a way so that Pharaoh will be paying for this Hebrew baby to be raised. And ultimately, this Hebrew baby is going to live in Pharaoh's palace. Well, as the story unfolds, uh, Moses is living in Pharaoh's palace, but his heart is clearly with his own people. And we see that with the incident with him killing the Egyptian slave, but also being rejected by his own people. So he doesn't feel like he belongs with the Egyptians, but the Israelites don't feel that he belongs with them either. So Moses flees to Midian. Now, when you understand where Midian is, it's a long way from anywhere. Uh, He's nowhere near the promised land and a very, very long way away from Egypt. He's a long way from his own people and he's a long way from the Egyptians and he's a long way from the promised land. I mean, it's pretty clear what Moses is trying to do here. He doesn't feel as though he fits in anywhere, so he's escaping. And even when he arrives in Midian, uh, he, the, he, he ends up tending the flocks of Jethro, but they think he's an Egyptian. They don't think he's an Israelite. So eventually, God again has a plan for Moses. And the turning point for Moses' life, and one of the major events in the pages of the Old Testament, is what we read in chapter 3. And I love what God says to Moses. Verse number 7, if you've got your Bible open there. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. And then jump down to verse 10, because God says, so now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. 
So God says, I have come down to rescue them. So you know what's going to happen now, Moses? You are going to go and confront Pharaoh. That will be the means by which God brings about this rescue. Now, to say that Moses was reluctant about doing the job would be a gross understatement. Again, it's, it's almost comical what happens in the rest of this one and a half chapters. Starting in the middle of chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 11, he offers his first excuse. Who am I to go? I'm a nobody. I mean, no one's going to listen to me. And then second objection is in verse 13. He says, I don't even know your name. What am I going to say when the people say to me, who sent you? Who will I say sent me? Verse 4, people aren't going to believe me. They're going to listen to me and think I'm a crazy man. Verse uh, 10, chapter 4, verse 10. I'm not articulate. He literally says, I've got a heavy tongue. And then verse 13 of chapter 4, he says, I just don't want to go. Send somebody else. One and a half chapters of him pleading not to do the thing that God wants him to do. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And and this is the man we're remembering as the great leader. Well, God deals with every one of Moses' excuses. And he tries to help Moses see, I'm doing this, mate. Not you. You'll be the mouthpiece. You'll be the one who's my man on the ground, but I will be the one who will be rescuing my people. And the most important thing that happens in these verses is that God actually reveals himself by name. He says, I am, which is where that Yahweh name comes from. And then in verse 15, he actually uses that Yahweh name. It's a very strange convention that we've got. You see it at the beginning of chapter 15, you've got the word Lord there, and it's that large capital and then three small capitals. Every time you see that word written that way in the Bible, that's that Yahweh name. And it's funny that we've actually taken that personal name that God gave to his people so that they would know him personally, and we've turned it into a title. We say, the Lord. But that's not what the passage says. The passage says... I'm Yahweh. Call me Yahweh. Well, Moses reluctantly goes to Egypt to do the thing that God has set before him. And God graciously allows him to take Aaron, his older brother, along with him. And I'm guessing to Moses' surprise, when he actually arrives in Egypt, he rounds up the leadership of of the Israelites and explains to them that God has sent him to rescue them. And their response is that they believe him. Well, see, all of his misgivings, they disappear straight away. The people believed what Moses said. So the next step for Moses was to confront Pharaoh, which he does. He says, let my people go. And Pharaoh refuses. And not only does he refuse, but he now makes the slavery even more intolerable. The workload is increased. This doesn't go down terribly well with the Israelites, that the man who's come to rescue them seems to have only increased their suffering. Well, the section, that section, chapter 6, closes with God still promising that he's going to rescue them and Moses still pleading that he's not able to do what God wants him to do. 
So that's what we see in the passage. But what does the passage tell us about how God deals with his people? Well, I've got two important things that I think come out of this. And the first one is Moses' reluctance. In choosing Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt, God is showing that he's actually willing to work with people who may not feel as though they're up to the task. God is able to work with reluctant people, people who don't think that they can do what God wants him to do. Moses, as I said, is remembered as one of the great leaders of the Old Testament. He'll be quoted the rest of the, the rest of the story of the Old Testament as one of the great leaders. But the way that he takes on the task is extraordinary. He's so reluctant about doing it. He comes up with every excuse under the sun about why God shouldn't use him to do it. Now we can laugh at the way that Moses does it, but you know what? I think we might actually be a little bit more like Moses than we'd like to admit. So God has plans and purposes for us in this world. He may not want you to rescue a nation, but he does want you to be faithful to him. He may not want you to speak to Pharaoh, but he does want you to share your faith with your friends. He may not want you to lead the people out of the promised land, but he does want you to point people to Jesus by your words and your actions. I think one of the things that surprises me when I look at all of the excuses that Moses makes is they actually look a lot like the excuses that I often make for not doing what God wants me to do. See, when it comes to doing the things that God wants me to do, I can very often think, well, who am I to do that? I mean, I'm not capable of doing that. Or I can say, but I'm not a very good speaker. Or what if people don't believe me? I mean, they're all of the things that Moses said. But but we need to learn the lesson that Moses learned, don't we? You may not feel like you're capable, but God's capable. So quit your excuses and trust God. And, And above all, seek to do what you know God wants you to do. See, like Moses, we seem to spend a lot of time thinking of excuses as to why we shouldn't do what it is that God wants us to do. But the great news is, God is is willing to work with weak, frail, reluctant people just like us. Now, we've seen that repeatedly in the story of the Old Testament, even in just those one and a half books that we've looked at of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. We see it with Abraham. We see it with Jacob. We see it with Moses. And the great encouragement is God can work through us as well. But the other important thing that we learn about God from this is that God discloses his name to these people. When someone asks us what our name is, we don't tend to think too much of it today, but it is actually a fairly important thing, isn't it? When you know someone's name, there's a degree of closeness in that relationship. Back in Moses' day, names were doubly important and the name of God was even more important again. So when Moses says to God, when the Israelites say to me, what's the name, what's your name, what'll I say? Did you notice that God doesn't say, oh, well, I go by a variety of names? And he doesn't say, well, any name will do, you pick one. 
He identifies himself specifically, he does it in a couple of ways. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That's the first thing that he says. But then he gives them this Yahweh name. I am who I am. Or I will be who I have been. It's really a comment about his willingness to fulfil the promises that he's made to his people. I am the God who made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and I'm still that God. I am the God who guided and protected them and I am still that God. And he says that name Yahweh in verse 15 of chapter 3. Now this is a big event in the story. This is God's personal disclosure This is God opening himself up and making himself known to his people. So God's demonstrating his willingness to be associated with these people, for them to know him and for him to know them. Did you notice? Go back to chapter 3 and verse number 7 and have a look at what it is that God says there. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. From here on, it will be God and Israel. His glory will depend on their success. He will be their God and they will be his people. He intends this to be a personal relationship. We talk about being on a first name basis with people. Well, God's saying, you guys are now on a first name basis with me. My name's Yahweh. I mean, that's what he's doing. That's the closeness of the relationship that God is now extending to these people. Well, what does the passage tell us about how God deals with his people in Jesus? When you look through the story of Moses, you can't help but be amazed that God's rescue plan seems to hinge on some fairly flimsy things happening, doesn't it? You know, the rescuer is a baby who's born under decree of death from the ruler of the day. There's Moses lying in a basket in the Nile River. The whole thing looks incredibly fragile, doesn't it? But God seems to like doing things that way, doesn't he? Because that's exactly the way that he does it when he sends his son into this world. There's a baby in a basket under threat of death from the ruler of the day. God chooses his saviour. And I think the reason God chooses the flimsy, fragile plans is to prove that it's God who's doing this. Because mere human beings wouldn't have come up with such a dumb plan. We would have come up with something much better that involved armies and tanks and anti-aircraft guns. We would have had all of that in place. But God puts a saviour in a basket in the Nile River or, or in a stable. It may look fragile, but in the end it's in God's hands. Not even Pharaoh, not even Herod can stand in the way of what God has planned and purposed to do. But the other thing that we need to make sure that we notice is this idea of God's 
self-disclosure. God is revealing himself, his character, his person to Moses when he speaks to him in that bush. Moses says, who will I say sent me? And God says, I go by a variety of names, choose whichever one. No, he doesn't say that, does he? That's, that's such a 20th century Western idea that all gods are the same. And it's not an idea that you get from the Bible anywhere. When God identifies himself, he identifies himself specifically and reveals himself specifically. He puts Israel on a first name basis with him. But all of this is just a shadow of what he's going to do with Jesus, isn't it? Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus, the son, is the exact representation of God's being. This is not a burning bush that's talking now. This is the son who is exactly what the father is. Colossians says that God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus. To the people of Israel, God's revelation was really just partial, even though he had given them his name. But in Jesus, God's full revelation, his complete revelation comes. That's why Jesus can say to the disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We see God clearly in the person of Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Well, he's made himself known specifically and clearly in his son.